some are short. Why do actuarial risk horizons really matter for anybody trying to improve patient outcomes? Today, I am speaking with Keith Passwater and J.R. Clark. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. On our website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, there is a little orange button that says, send us a voice message. If you have a question, feel free to click on that button and we'll try to round up a posse to answer your question if we can. So let's do this thing. Hey, Stacy, really big fan. Really loved the last episode. I had a question. Could you provide more clarity on what the key takeaway was about the actuaries and the different timelines that they're working on versus physicians, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Great question. And yes, I did kind of drop in an episode something about risk horizons with no explanation. Instead of trying to answer that question myself, I reached out to a couple of actual actuaries, Keith Passwater and J.R. Clark. I'm going to play their answers and give a little color commentary before and after to kind of knit together this whole thing into a few succinct takeaways for you. Keith Passwater is former senior vice president and chief actuary over at Anthem. Keith founded Havarti Risk Services. He brings better risk products and services to healthcare clients. Keith is also a fellow of the Society of Actuaries, a member of the American Academy of Actuaries, and he serves on the General Committee of the Actuarial Standards Board. J.R. Clark is SVP of Health Plan Product and Strategy at Patient Technologies, where he partners with thoughtful employers, insurers, and health systems to help people better access and afford healthcare. J.R. is known for his public exchange marketplace strategies, and that's relevant for today, and the creation of alternative products in the individual and small group segments. So our panel here is strong, is the bottom line. I do want to take a moment to underscore five times that if any healthcare transformation is going to happen, whomever is transforming pretty much anything must, and this is mandatory, they are going to have to be hip to hip with an actuary, but a special kind of actuary, one who applies their considerable smarts to factor in the patient or member as an actual stakeholder in their equations. Because what now? Came to discover that in most actuaries' current models, the impact on the patient or member is not part of their equation. Yeah, yes, you heard that right. Despite the fact that study after study shows that once co-pays or co-insurance reaches a certain dollar amount, patients will start abandoning care, as just one example. And despite financial toxicity being clinical toxicity and how the cost of care can be a comorbidity, as Cody Kunrant has put it, you only have a small percentage of actuaries who are factoring this in when adding and subtracting and toting up the benefit design. So crazy, especially because even if you forget about the human aspect here, just ignore it. I'd suspect the math is actually wrong if you ignore the patient as a stakeholder. There are financial consequences when patients abandon meds and care, and some of them manifest fairly quickly and not in a way that is revenue positive for the plan. Diabetes patients who don't take their insulin, guy sees a spot on his arm, is it melanoma? I don't know, but I do know I'll be $600 in the hole if I go see the doctor so he doesn't go until it's really big. I mean, unless the patient dies on the quick, you'd think that there'd be some statistical contemplations about this, i.e. how much does it cost plans in the short slash medium term when patients who need care fail to seek it? 
Actually, Alex Summers wrote a post on this the other day in this post about how much it actually costs when patients abandon care. He references the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is probably why I remember it. I will link to it in the show notes. Any actuaries out there who are taking the patient into account or health equity is another thing, let me personally give you a round of applause. It's really easy to feel powerless inside a big machine where everybody is a cog in the wheel and therefore it's really hard for anybody to have accountability for the outcomes that we all contribute to. So it's a hugely impressive thing when I meet someone who is figuring out how they can create some net positive patient impact. Okay, so you heard the listener question, what do you mean by risk horizons? I played the same question for Keith Passwater and this was his response. Hey Stacy, Keith Passwater. Hey, one of the things that I wanted to add to the discussion around healthcare value and what to do about the dramatically rising cost of healthcare and lack of affordability is this topic actuaries talk about and others known as the risk horizon. This is analogous to an investment horizon someone may have where an advisor may ask an investor, an individual, well, what's your investment horizon or how long until you retire? The reason they ask, of course, is if the time interval is very short, then the portfolio of assets that advisor might put forward should be less vulnerable to volatility. And so an investment advisor of someone who has a short investment horizon will tend to want to put less risk into that portfolio, like bonds, for instance, someone who's getting close to retirement. If the individual has a long investment horizon, the opposite's true. An advisor would recommend things that are a little more volatile and risky because the return will be higher. So when we talk about in healthcare is actually the risk horizon, something similar is, un- is in view here, which is what's the time interval over which we hope to impact healthcare cost. If that time horizon is very long, then participants are willing to take a greater risk that this moonshot is is sometimes a phrase used or some sort of uh, potentially wildly successful solution could be tried. If that interval is relatively short, like let's just say one year, then the participants want to pick something that's a much more guaranteed return. This is relevant in healthcare, particularly commercial healthcare, but also really in all the lines of business to some degree, because so much of what we do is based on a calendar year or 12 month, a relatively short risk interval. And so what that means is that if you ask an insurance company, hey, would you be willing to make an investment in this new innovation, which should lower healthcare costs for the population that's covered in the future, their risk interval is just 12 months. And in fact, if you can't get that, in, that solution implemented in the first and on day one, then it's even shorter than 12 months. A lot of things we talk about should help population health and lower cost over the lifetime of the individual. So 10, 20, 30 years, but very little of what we pay for in healthcare is paid for by entities that have that risk interval or that horizon over which to make the return. And this is really a fundamental problem to try to inject innovation into the healthcare system with the intent of gaining a long-term return. So whenever I try to think like an actuary, I have to remind myself to stop thinking like a patient and start thinking like a plan. It's this mental exercise that reminds me of accounting 101 when you learn that debits are actually credits and credits are debits and my mind is still blown. That said, if we're talking about a risky investment for an actuary, that might be deciding to pay for preventative care or non-emergent care that the ACA or other regs don't require them to pay for because it's risky that those dollars spent are going to show any ROI within a specified time frame or risk horizon. 
So if we're talking about chronic care management or coordinating care or even member experience to a certain extent, if it's a short time horizon, what are the chances that anyone's even going to realize there's a crappy member experience or uncoordinated care or network adequacy problem in that window? Because that's the math that's going on here again. Any actuaries out there who are taking the patient into account, let me personally give you a round of applause. It's a hugely impressive thing, but if we're trying to keep premiums down and the time horizon is short, then many spend as little money as possible doing things that pretty likely either won't bear fruit, i.e. is it worth it to spend money helping someone quit smoking in June when they might not be on our plan come December. There is a definite incentive to spend as little as possible because no downstream costs are going to be reduced. That heart attack will happen if the heart attack is going to happen. And any money spent trying to prevent anything or improve anything is just going to raise the cost basis of the plan. The thinking here is just calculate how many acute things are going to transpire across the population, reduce all of the other benefit design expenses as low as they can go and call it good. Now, if the time horizon is longer, then we can put money into moonshots or so-called riskier things. We have a longer time frame to potentially make back our money. Coming up here in a sec, I'm going to play a clip from J.R. Clark. J.R. takes the question from the standpoint of an actuary who is trying to advise a client on the risk horizon to use for their product design or benefit design. This is something that actuaries do. They figure out what risk horizon to use. Okay, brain, debits, credits, credits, debits. JR's point is that if you're the actuary and you choose a risk horizon to use as the basis for all your math and you mess up, let's say you assume a risk horizon that is longer than most beneficiaries stay with your plan. Then your benefit design will allow members to cost too much in ways that you're not going to have time to recoup. You're going to buy high and sell low. I mean, that is the job of the actuary after all. It's to forecast future costs and make sure the premium will cover those costs. So if the risk horizon used is too long, then the actuary is assuming that the investments will net return that they won't net. I mean, using Keith's investment analogy that he just was talking about in the last clip, if we know we need to take money out of our 401k in five years, but we put our money in investments that are going to take six years to mature, you see what I mean. You spent a whole bunch of money to save downstream costs that didn't wind up saving anything. If this happens, you are not going to be charging enough in premiums to actually pay for the investments that you're making in people's health because there's going to be too few returns on that investment within the risk horizon that you're using. So here's JR, and he gives an actual example using healthcare.gov individual exchanges, which JR Clark did a lot of work on back in the day, so he should know. When you think about risk horizons for health insurance, the idea behind it is, you know, that your product design or your pricing or your condition management or whatever program you're implementing, it really needs to match the expectations for the time in which you're implementing the program. So if you set your risk horizon too near term, you really might end up underwater financially of, say, like, your costs tend to trend upward with medical inflation for a longer period than, than you've considered. Then on the other hand, if you think about the program too long term, you might end up actually being too overly conservative and your product ends up too costly for the market. Two examples that come to mind of risk horizons pertain to health insurance specifically. Example one, if you think about the individual exchange business, if we're sitting in 2023 now and we're thinking about pricing for 2024, Really, our risk horizon would take into consideration a handful of things. Uh, the first is that 
you know, the folks that purchase individual exchange insurance really are largely going through open enrollment in November, December timeframe of 2023 to buy insurance that starts beginning in January 2024 and that ends at the end of December of 2024. So it really truly is a 2024 year calendar year benefit. And so second thing is really individual exchange members really tend to turn over more frequently than maybe other commercial insurance business would. And that's for a myriad of reasons. They, they pick up insurance through an employer during the year, potentially, or maybe during the year they become Medicaid eligible or they decide they no longer need the insurance in general. Or frankly, really, when you look at the individual folks, they, they really aren't as loyal to a brand name of insurance. And the kind of third item that's important there is that individual purchasers uh, really are much more price sensitive. And that's because the federal premium subsidies are tied to the market pricing of silver plans across all participating insurers. So what all this means is that by and large, the risk horizon when pricing is really only through calendar year 2024, because you know the expected length of the tenure of that customer is shorter, it really, because it is again only through 2024. And then the insurers have the opportunity to reprice business for 2025 so they can compensate or fix any kind of differences than what was expected in 2024. You know, if you think about it, if if I am pricing and I try to price for all the items that could have potentially been applicable longer term than 2024, I risk really no longer being competitive in the market, which means I can quickly become irrelevant in the market and just lose business altogether. JR was talking about individual exchanges. Point one, individual exchange terms are one calendar year. Point two, lots of turnover for all kinds of reasons and might make the term even shorter. Point three, members are price sensitive and will switch plans on a dime. So individual exchanges necessarily must have really short time horizons. If I try to do anything beyond the bare minimum as a plan, I'll price myself out of the market or lose money. So JR here is talking about healthcare.gov at these individual exchanges, but this is a great example of the kind of thinking that actuaries do. Now contrast this to how an actuary might consider pricing an employer plan with longer time horizons. For a carrier in this situation, what matters is how long the employer may stay with the plan and adjacently how long the employees will be in that employer plan. Okay, so now let's hear JR talking about the options that are on the table when the risk horizon is longer. The second example in all this is really a contrast when you think about the employer group insurance market. So we just talked about individuals being shorter term purchasers. It's very different for group purchasers. So the expected tenure of an employer group might be something like five to six years. This means that even though in the same case, I'm sitting in 2023 and looking to price for 2024, I'm still pricing on that manner. But actually have a longer risk horizon. Why is that? You know, if a group is is planning to be with me on average, something like, you know, four or five, six years, I've got to think four or five, six years out. Because for employers with employees, especially that turn over at a low rate and have a stable size, you know, think of this as like school systems where teachers don't turn over very often from their employment. That lifetime value of the employer and their employees is, is much, much higher. And as a consequence, the risk horizon is longer. When you have a longer lifetime value and a longer risk horizon, you tend to take some extra things into consideration. The first is that the health conditions that are being insured and their associated costs really may be with the insurer for quite a long time. That means that when you have programs that improve population health, think of these as like chronic illness management programs for things like diabetes, they actually do have time to take hold and become effective. 
And then in, these improved health outcomes tend to lower the overall cost of care over time. The second thing really is that when you have these longer horizons, there's more time to spread out costs. So for example, an employee might break an ankle one year that has a high cost associated with it, but then that same employee might be perfectly fine and healthy for the next five years and have no health costs attributable to them. So two factors to consider with longer time horizons. One, there's a longer time frame to make your money back. Two, longer time frame to spread out costs of acute events or big claims that might happen. Then next point that JR makes in the clip that follows, I think is really key. He talks about how if you're in the plan design business, how a short or a long time horizon will exactly and specifically impact the decisions that you make, i.e. choices about what is going to be covered and what providers are going to be in network and how those two things intertwine. Here's JR again. Thinking about how these differences in risk horizons play out, there really are some items that are important to note. The first is benefit design. When the risk horizon is short and really when the market is competitive and there isn't enough time for population health management programs to really be effective at substantially lowering the cost of care, particularly in environments where underwriting isn't allowed, like in the individual ACA business. Benefit designs, or in a lot of cases, even the provider networks, they end up used by the insurer to help control costs. For example, if you look at individual exchange plans, you'll often see that any non-emergent services that are out of network are really not covered by the plan. And usually the network of providers is also narrower. And the reason for this really is that this design helps trim out higher cost providers. Now, I say all this, but I really want to be pretty clear on a couple of things. The first is this doesn't mean that health plan designs always become overly restrictive for shorter horizons for risk or less restrictive for longer risk horizons. It really just means that the health plan designs and their pricing they adapt. They adapt to risk horizons, they adapt to market competition, and they adapt to what really the purchaser is looking for. And the second thing to really be clear on is that when we think about administration of benefits, like the benefit is legally required to be administered exactly how it's designed. If the benefit is written, for example, to offer, say, unlimited specialist visits, the insurer can't all of a sudden say to the individual member, hey, you know, because I plan for you to have a shorter risk horizon and I'm not going to see the longer term results of you getting appropriate care. I'm going to stop paying for your specialist visits after one visit. And that's just that's just not allowed in all like in all restrictions there. The benefits have to be administered exactly the way they're written. So hopefully these, these examples help, Stacey, and really appreciate that you let me weigh in on this. So an independent practice offering, I don't know, rheumatology services might be pushed out of network or a pulmonologist or something because these services somehow might be considered non-emergent. My understanding here is that, frankly, not having a broad network or maybe even an adequate network is kind of a plus if you're trying to save money in a really short time horizon. If the network is narrow and then there's super long wait times at the in-network places for so-called non-emergent care, yeah, that's awesome. It will limit the number of expensive specialist visits and expensive drugs or treatments that any given member can manage to get during or after that specialist visit. Look, in sum, you can't have a plan that goes bankrupt 
But also the current status quo in some plans is really shitty. I love meeting actuaries like Keith Passwater and J.R. Clark and also Erica Baird, who I had the pleasure of getting to know on a recent Society of Actuaries panel. It's such an inspiration to meet individuals like this who are working hard to try to figure out how to make the math work in a way that takes patients and members into account. One that is more reflective of the values that we as a society have. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. So let's talk about going over to our website and typing your email address in the box to get the weekly email about the show that has come out. Sometimes people don't do that because they have subscribed on iTunes or Spotify and or we're friends on LinkedIn. What you get in that email is a full and unredacted, unedited version of the whole introduction of the show transcribed. There's also show notes with timestamps, just apprising you of the options that are available. Thanks so much for listening.